Okay, and here we are with another episode of The Art of Mindful Medicine. And of course, I'm Dr. Seth Gilson, holistic dentist, certified yoga teacher, and speaker. And today I have a very special guest, someone that I've been uh, following and in contact with for, for quite a while now, Dr. Mark Berhenna. And he is a best-selling author and a family and sleep medicine dentist who was in private practice nearly 35 years. He focuses on patient-centered functional dental health care. He received his degree from the Dugoni School of Dentistry in San Francisco and is a member of the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine. He is a TEDx speaker, and his, his advice regularly appears on media outlets such as CNN, NPR, The Huffington Post, Men's Health, and CBS. He is the creator of AskTheDentist.com and is known as Dr. B to his followers around the web and on his podcast. His company is dedicated to exploring the mouth-body connection and the primary role of the oral microbiome uh, and what it has not to, just with oral health, but how it impacts systemic health as well. Dr. B's mission by becoming a healthcare influencer has been to illustrate to patients as well as providers that optimal health can only be achieved by addressing one's own oral health. So again, Dr. B, thank you so much for coming on here with me today. And as always with the Art of Mindful Medicine, I'd like to start with gratitude. So could you please share with us three things that you're grateful for today? Absolutely. Uh, and Seth, please call me Mark. Uh, um, gratitude. Whoa. Um, I usually leave that for the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's a good morning routine to, to think of gratitude. Uh, I'm thankful for many things. I mean, more than three. Uh, but what comes to mind is A, what we're doing today. Uh, I have a voice. I have some influence. Uh, and I'm very passionate about what I'm doing and what you're doing, uh, essentially, and dentistry. And and it's just nice to be able to influence and be part of that discussion and teaching and educating and informing uh, patients, followers, uh, other healthcare practitioners, um, government organizations. Uh, that was a recent development that was fun. Um, and also corporations. Uh and and so and whoever else is listening or wants to listen and so that, that I'm very grateful for that and I do not take that lightly. I'm grateful also for my own health and for my family's health. Uh, again, it's their challenges, but we've always been able to get through them, and we're very focused on health uh, and and mindfulness. Um, I just got back from a retreat with James and Esther in Costa Rica kind of tuned that up a little bit, breathing especially. So you know, I'm not in perfect health, but I'm probably in the top 1%. Uh, you know, I have good numbers. Uh, I know a lot about health. And again, it's it's a real challenge and a lot of sacrifice, uh, but I'm happy. In other words, I'm very happy that I feel as as I do and feel good and, and speak and, you know, talk about things pretty coherently. And, and I mean, that's, you know, at age 64, uh, that's, I think, a, a gift and you you have to work hard for it. I would tell everyone that work hard for it. Um, and it's totally worth it. Uh, I, I know a lot of my friends are beginning to, to fail in one way or another, and it's very sad to see. And I've known them for 30, 40, some family members, 60 years. And, and, and you can go back in time and, and pretty much, you know, point out reasons of what lifestyle choices, uh, you know, some of its genes, that that were were there that that caused that to happen. So I'm just glad from an early age I was able to make the right choices. At least I had that 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 drive 
Uh, where that came from, I don't know. We can talk about that later if you want. Probably my mom and my dad. But uh, very thankful for my own health uh, and the ability to go out and enjoy life and and have meaningful moments, uh, uh, kind of holding a moment. I mean, that's that's really you can't take that for granted. Um, it's a it's a skill. You have to kind yeah. of learn how to do it. And you know, it took me a while to to get there. Um, and then what else? Uh, gosh, I'm just. Uh, I'm just thinking of what pops in my mind. I'm really very content with my married life and family and where I live here in, in Napa Valley um, and just having a wonderful environment to work in. I'm just looking at my, my barn and, and uh, it's just, you know, you have to appreciate comfort and safety and security. You really, you can't not uh, include that in, in your gratitude. And, and I have a lot of that. I've got beautiful outdoors and, you know, the FedEx guy is friendly. I mean, it's just like, you could go on and on. So I'm very, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to sound too, too corny. <laughs> no, no, that's great. Yeah. I, I, right. I totally agree. I mean, I, yeah. we're extremely fortunate just being in the United States, first of all. Um, yeah. so, totally. and to me, like you said, your second one health, your health to, and people have said this for, I don't know how many years, but health is the true wealth. Right. Mm -hmm. Because without that, we can't do anything else. Yeah. We can't be of service yeah. to others. We can't be of service to our family. We can't be present when, when right. we're not healthy. So, right. and, and that's ultimately what, what, and why my, I'm motivated to do this. And it was kind of sounded similar to you that it started at a very young age for me. Uh, my, my driving force was soccer, uh, but it, it really propelled me into a health and wellness uh, lifestyle that at that point I would have never known that where, where how it would get me to the, to this place. So, right. uh, thank you for that. And I would like you to share with some people. I don't know how many people know know your story. Like maybe where you're from and, and a little bit of your personal background. When yeah. Um, so I I grew up in San Francisco. Uh, again, I said earlier I'm 64 years old. So I was born in in you know 50s, late 50s. Uh, uh, San Francisco back then was a very interesting city. Uh, I was had the Rome had free roam of the city on my bicycle. Um, I would bike through uh, all sorts of neighborhoods. Uh, Haight-Ashbury was, was a very interesting. I was literally 10 years old when, you know, the likes of Carlos Santana and Jefferson Starship were playing pre-first album in Golden Gate Park. And the re only reason I was going there is because that's where all the bike stores were and still are in the city. And I was buying parts because I had a little side hustle fixing bikes uh, for an hourly wage. A lot of my friends couldn't tune their their, you know, French derailleurs and, and all of that. And so, but we would bike the city. I mean, the only places we stayed away from, uh, were like the mission, which ironically now some of my daughters live in and it's gentrified. And so, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, went to a great school. Um, I was a hymnal boy in a big cathedral in San Francisco. A lot of people don't know that I used to sing in a choir every morning at nine o'clock. I used to put my purple robe on and, and then make sure all the hymnals were in place. Uh, I was influenced early with music uh, with my dad and mom, but in that cathedral, which is a replica of a true, very large late Gothic cathedral, um, uh, it has one of the largest organs uh, in, I think, on the West Coast. It's called the Ham Alexander Hamilton Organ, I think. And, and our organist was very well known, John Fenstermaker. I don't know if he's still around. And so he would play, you know, 
fugues, like from Bach at full bore. And the, you know, there were pipes at the end of the apse and above the center of the church and right next to us in the choir. So that was very inspirational. And um, it was very athletic, played a lot of sports. Uh, we talked about this earlier, soccer and baseball. And and the city was was very, was a great place back then. It was pretty safe. And and uh, it was, um, you know, my dad was a physician there. My mom was into holistic medicine. I could hear them argue at the dinner table <laughs> about those two, those, the conflicts there. And, you know, and that was while I was eating my dad's, he was German, Sauerbraten, which is a, you know, a, a kind of a fermented piece of meat, which mm -hmm. was great. Uh, in hindsight, glad I had that was raised that way. And then, and then, but then my mom would add like dandelion stems to the salad. And we were all like, what is that? You know, so, <laughs> so, so definitely some early uh, influences there uh, by age 17, um, late high school, I was a total health nerd in terms of longevity supplements. I mean, what 17 year old in college in, in high school does that, right? I mean, I would play paddle and skip school and soccer skiing. I loved skiing. My dad was a great skier. So we skied every weekend. Um, so, but that's kind of where I started. And I, you know, was it those arguments at the dinner table between my dad and mom? I don't know. Um, but that's how I got interested in, in healthcare. And so I read all these books. I mean, I was reading books about sustainable farming, uh, biodynamic uh, stuff. Uh, uh, you know, there was uh, Berkeley was across the bay. There was a lot of influence there. There were a lot of, uh, there was a famous author there. His name was uh, Friedhof Capra. He wrote The Turning Point, which is a big, thick book. I, I reread it every 10 years just to see where we are. And we, we didn't make it. You know, we're, we're not what what his vision was or where we should be in terms of the environment and, and big food, uh, you know, uh, healthy food sources and availability. And uh, and then, um, you know, and then I went to college and then uh, in Canada, University of British Columbia did not go into pre-dental at that point in time. I was a, uh, a, fine, a um, history of art major. And ironically, I was studying Gothic architecture. I, I wrote a thesis on comparing Chartres to Bourges. Those are two big cathedrals in Europe, in, in France. And it, I, my argument was that Chartres should not be the prototypical building for that for Gothic architecture. It should have been Bourges, which is further south of France. And and I was just deep into that, enjoying myself. And and then one day I went down into a basement, and this is pre, you know, computers as we know it. It was a an old CPM machine with eight big seven-inch floppies. And I took a personality test that was tied to, um, uh, you know, advice on, uh, you know, what to do in life and and career advice. And number two was dentistry. And it it just it came out of left field. My dad was a well-known physician, so I had said, "There's no way I'm doing that." not following in his footsteps. Um, didn't really like medicine at that point. Uh, didn't make sense to me. Um, I think it's gotten worse now, of course. We can talk about that if you want. But back then, even I was, I, I just didn't like the, what he was bringing home. And he was a radiologist. So diagnostics, very important. But then, you know, it, they were just treating symptoms back then as well. Um, and then I I had to catch up. And so I took an extra year in college, took my pre-dental, went back to my first choice in, in San Francisco's dental school. And, and that's kind of where I ended up just after 36 years of practicing, I'm now an influencer using the internet. I mean, it's just, 
it's mind blowing. I, I had no the internet, idea. The internet got you into dentistry, basically. I mean, You're, like the computer. Well, but there was it was not connected to yeah, the web. Yeah, whatever that a system computer. was. Yes. A computer, yes, a computer. Exactly. And now you use computers to actually give the the share the knowledge and, and experiences you've had with right. the world, essentially. Right. And That's, ironic, I'm I'm giving a lot of career advice to a lot of young people and and <laughs> a lot of young dentists. So so you know it's funny how things go. But you know I, I was very fortunate, had a a, a great childhood, good parents, uh, and um, you know made some good choices, made some bad choices, and despite that, I'm still here. So yeah, it's good. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so on that front, um, in your earlier years, is there an event or an experience uh, which mm. impacted and molded you who into who you are today? Boy, uh, that is a great question. Um, probably the death of my mom and dad. Uh, they died early. Uh, Alzheimer's, dad, with dementia. Sorry, dad was ALS with dementia, which is a rare combo. Mm -hmm. And he died at almost 70, almost made it to 70, which is young for a very healthy, energetic, uh, fit man. I mean, he was mountaineering and skiing and traveling the world and, and working and publishing and, and doing research, um, uh, right up until, uh, probably age 64, 66. And then my mom, who was that health nut that we discussed earlier and was pretty healthy uh, later in life. I realized there was a lot of, in both of them, undiagnosed sleep apnea, uh, probably some metabolic stuff. Uh, they weren't big drinkers, you know, casual smokers back in the sixties at, at cocktail parties only. Um, and, uh, she died. I mean, she was pretty much gone full on Alzheimer's, uh, by, I want to say 65, uh, oh. early menopause, perio, you know, I mean, all, all those connections to Alzheimer's P. gingivalis bug and sleep apnea. Uh, and you know, who knows what they were exposed to because they did travel a lot. They were, because my dad was a physician, he traveled behind the Iron Curtain to teach. You know, there are a lot of, he was in post-World War II Germany as wow. a young man, a lot of toxins, uh, you know, who knows? But um, I, I think that really, it, it wasn't like a sudden moment where, oh my God, my parents died. I think over, maybe over a period of five to 10 years, you kind of think of, you know, legacy. What do you leave behind? What kind of parent am I going to be? Um and you know what's important to you, and uh, and then you also think about how many years you have left. Uh, I have one good family member, uh, my grandmother uh, Clara Dickus or Clara Borhenna. That was her maiden name. Uh, she was a PhD, uh, cigar smoking German grandmother, my Grossmutti, and lived in Bavaria. Uh, lived was a single mom, raised her two boys, one being my dad. And uh, she died when she was 99 and she was clear headed to the end. And, you know, she had a broken hip at like age 91, was lying in her wine cellar for three days before they found her. She was just breaking open bottles of wine to survive. I mean, just an amazing wow. tour de force. And so I'm hoping I'm hoping I got some of her genes and, you know, and not that drinking all that wine is good for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so I would say probably. Probably that. I mean, there are many other moments, certainly. Um, but I think that I think moments that affect you and and make you think about things tend to be on the traumatic side. And and I think caring for them and seeing that degradation 
in life, in, 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 in quality of life and losing your memory and your memories, um, and your body just wasting away. I think that definitely has a, should have an impact on you, but it certainly had an impact on me. Yeah, I can definitely see how and why. I mean, obviously parents are, are two of the closest people to us. And mm -hmm. uh, the fact that now what, how much you share, which we're going to get into in, in a little bit about Alzheimer's and we were talking about the oral, oral health and oral microbiome and, and the different bugs in the mouth and how it affects systemic health, especially with sleep and sleep apnea, because right. like, like you, you're, I'm going to have you talk a little bit about later that it really impacts our overall health metabolically and just everything about us. So thank you for that. Uh, and currently, what's an area in your life that you're actively working to improve? I would say my weight and my muscle tone. That's about it. That's what I would like to do. And so uh, just recently purchased a tonal unit, um, getting out more on my mountain bike uh, uh, and, and doing more floor exercises, more core. Uh, I think it's it's pretty obvious now to any healthcare practitioner should be uh, that uh, muscle mass is is what leaves you as you get older. But if you can keep, mo you know, all of it or increase it, even I, I think as you get older, I could have more muscle mass than I did when I was a scrawny kid back in high school. At least that's the hope. I think that uh, I think that would be that would be my that's my number one goal right now. So uh, just, you know, uh, squaring that life curve and, and keeping my life quality as, you know, level as possible, because as I get older, um, you know, we, we know where it's going, but you do have control over that trajectory. And so I'm very lucky. I don't have any chronic diseases. I'm not on any meds. Uh, my oral microbiome tests are stellar. <laughs> we can talk about that later if you want. Um, so that's kind of, I mean, I try and keep it simple and, and just focus on things that I know if I focus on one or two big things, then that will have big impacts later. And then if I can correct that, then then, you know, on to the next thing, whatever that may be. But boy, if we can, I mean, metabolic health, right? That is one of the big factors in anyone's life, whether it's relationships or uh, success at work or, you know, staying out of the hospital, staying, uh, you know, healthy, oral health, you name it, um, and living longer um, and your ability to do things. It, it's, it's all based on lifestyle. So, so that is something that we need to keep at. It's it's an ongoing, I don't want to use the word struggle. It's an ongoing kind of activity that you really have to focus on. Yeah, it's, it's. Uh, I was, the word that came to mind to me for, is practice. It's it's a long-term practice because we're always learning and improving. And sometimes we're not on our A game, but you give 100% of whatever you can give that day. And right. I completely agree with you, sarcopenia. I suggest people mm -hmm. go and look up what that is. And over the past year, I mean, I've been an, an athlete and, and pretty much exercised my whole life, thankfully. <laughs> but uh, sarcopenia is one of the biggest predictors of, of longevity. Or, yes. So um, that's, a, that's a huge factor that I suggest people look into. And I'm, and I'm, I'm happy that's, that's what you're working on. That, that's, a great, that's a great thing. So uh, you, you mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier, and, and of course, being that we're on the art of mindful medicine, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about mindfulness. And can you just express what, what that term means to you? Mindfulness. So we, uh, a, another uh, functional dentist and I, we just came out with, a, well, we're coming out with a six-hour 
resetting your oral microbiome course. And one of the modules is mindfulness. And it, it, uh, the other dentist, uh, Dr. Stacy Whitman, uh, was the one that presented that module. You know, we took turns presenting different modules. So I was able to sit back and, and listen. And, uh, so I, I learned a little bit, um, you know, the, the term's kind of vague and it has a very broad definition or, or scope of, of what it means to people. Um, and, and that's okay. I mean, uh, as long as they get close to what, what I'm about to describe, uh, I think mindfulness is a human trait that is innate in all of us. Uh, it doesn't mean it always comes out, but it's there and we, we all have the potential for it. And it's really being aware of our surroundings and, and in, in, in a, comprehensive way in seeing things in the right way. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of us are in denial. Uh, I can use many examples. I'll, I'll, you know, typically health, but you could talk about, you know, what their version of a historical event is, you know, and, you know, they deny the facts and then there's political denial, but healthcare denial is a very common thing. You see it all the time with your patients, especially with male patients, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but, you know, it's like, do you snore at night? No, I don't snore. I've never snored in my life. And then you talk to their partner, their their wife or their partner. And um, and it's like, oh, my God, you know, like I, I literally have to roll them over and it goes on all night long. And so that that kind of stuff. So mindfulness to me is to me is and this is going to sound corny, but my definition of being a man is compassion and teaching and getting the message out, supporting people, supporting my family, start there, supporting the kids, the grandkids, and then supporting other people, supporting uh, practitioners, supporting uh, all my listeners, giving them information. I call that the, the Boy Scout kind of mentality. So when I'm out on the ski slopes and I meet someone or I'm with a friend, you know, the first thing I want to do is show them all the little hidden secrets on the mountain. And, and that's just in, and to me, that's being... Uh, not a leader. Uh, it's more being a good person, uh, being aware of your fiduciary duty as a professional. That would be one small example. Um, uh, and, and being supportive and, and being kind to others, uh, and then also being kind to yourself, but it's more about awareness, uh, and having, being honest with yourself and, and realizing when you don't, that, that inner dialogue is, is you're lying to yourself. And then turning that around, and then and then of course that makes you a better person to the people around you. So I don't know if that's your definition, but mindfulness is really something that we all have in us. But there are several external influencers. You know, it could be TikTok, it could be uh, uh, you know a food choice you're making that you're addicted to, and and you're you're just telling yourself it's not that bad. When in reality, it's it's uh, spiking your blood sugar levels. I mean, it could be on so many different fronts. So, so it's just making sure and being honest with yourself that you're seeing the world and your environment around you, and then being compassionate to others and and helpful and being a good person, not being a drag on on the people around you or on society in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you for that. It, it's um, that that's why I asked the question because I like hearing different people's perspectives on the same thing, but. It, it, at the end of the day, it, yes, it's about awareness. Uh, of, Yo, so I'm, I'm of, curious what, in a nutshell, what is your definition um, of mindfulness? 
it's hard. I don't, I, I can't say that I fully formulated my own definition yet at this point, just because like you just experienced, it's not something to just simply define. It's, right. it's a state it, it's, yeah. or like you said, it's a trait to me. Right. It's a, it's a state of being and it's a, and it's in a way of experiencing life. So it's right. more of an experience rather than an action. You can mindfully do things, mm-hmm. but it's really that, well, like you said, an inner dialogue, but it's, for me, it's more like an inner state and that presence and that awareness of mm-hmm. what's going, what's within and what's without at any given moment is how right. I, I feel about mindfulness, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I think in a nutshell, it's does the real you show up every day? Yeah. Authenticity yeah. is definitely yeah. part of it. Right. For sure. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And that's great that you're doing that that course with with Dr. Stacy. She she's been on here too. So for you guys that yeah. may not have seen it, go 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 and watch that episode. Dr. Stacy is awesome. Um, she is. She, she she's. Uh, we talked about the the functional medicine course and things like that. So good. it's uh, it's great, and and I love her content as well. She's she's a good person. So she's amazing. Really happy to hear you Absolutely. guys are doing yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so, are there any specific? practices that you have for mindfulness in your own life? And if so, how have these maybe guided or impacted your life? Um, I think breathing and learning how to, you know, uh, calm the, the inner dialogue and anxiety and worrisome thoughts. Um, uh, you know, I don't meditate. Uh, I was, kind of had my own breathing methods before I was exposed to like Wim Hof and, and, and yoga and all the, the, how the, I mean, the yogis had it right. I mean, long ago, it goes back 5,000 years ago, uh, Taoism, uh, all of that. Uh, if, you know, having been exposed to that recently at that, uh, retreat in Costa Rica, um, it was like, okay, I could certainly fine tune things, but I'm, you know, I realized that my idea was not original, but I was able probably 30, maybe 40 years ago, um, you know, three kids, wife, mortgage, new practice, starting from scratch, practicing differently than other dentists in the area. I mean, there was a lot to be kind of, you know, uh, wound up about, um, and I was working hard. So breathing, uh, practices, um, and then also sleep. Uh, I think uh, really focusing on sleep, and I made a lot of mistakes there. Uh, I had the ability to stay up late at night and work through my second wind, and so I think breathing. And but really, it's about um, again, it goes back to mindfulness. Uh, but it's it's about just telling yourself that if you work hard, and 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 you know if you're a, if you can acknowledge that you're a good person, you're doing great stuff, that everything will work out. And, and that's a, that's a daily, I think that's a daily dialogue you have to have with yourself. Um, so I think that's kind of how I do it. Uh, no, I mean, exercise certainly helps. I feel much better exercising. I feel much better going out down the hill and walking around the lake, uh, seeing greenery, uh, mountain biking, uh, you know, whipping through the trees, skiing, um, uh, yesterday we skied up at Alpine Meadows. We're still skiing in May. Uh, you know, I just, the skiing wasn't great cause it was so soft, but I just took a hike to an out of bounds little area. It's called idiot's delight, um, up at near, uh, Alpine, well, Alpine Meadows in near Tahoe. 
And it was just nice to be alone and to see the views. And even though the skiing wasn't good, it really enriches you. It it just makes you feel great and and positive. So just staying positive and making sure that you can scan the horizon, that that neurological effect of being able to see the horizon and walking towards it. Uh, I think that really has a, a great effect. Listening to music. Music is my way of meditation. I will throw on a record, uh, sit in the barn. It lights are out. It's not dark, but the lights are out. There's no visual distraction, no reading, and just listen to one side of an album and just closing your eyes and imagining what that moment may have been like, you know, was it a recording studio, you know, who, you know, why did the musicians arrive late? You know, were they, were they drunk? <laughs> I mean, this is, I'm referring to a lot of stuff from the fifties, uh, <laughs> you know, heroin, uh, you know, this is jazz, but you know, it could be a concert hall. Uh, where was it recorded? And you just start, it's not just the music. It's really pulling away and, and leaving your, your, body and and your worries and and then you know moving up to a different uh kind of you know thought patterns and so so i think it's really about managing stress and anxiety and 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 being able to turn that off every day you, you can't let it go for more than a few days uh, we're not good with constant stress and chronic stress we're good for short little moments of stress and then you got to recover and regain that positive attitude and keep going that's the only way we're able to really function well. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think nature and just you don't even have to necessarily be in the sun, but like that, just getting the, the infrared, it it just affects our cells and the totally. mitochondria. I mean, it just it's so nourishing. And yep. that's one of the biggest problems to me is that we're just disconnected from real nature. And yep. it, it however it works, whether it's if you can get to it, uh, the top of a mountain with snow on it or if you can. Yep get out to a beach like like where i am i mean you just you got to do it it's yep. it's it's so important yep. and you you were talking about what, what's leading me into my next question that's stress and being mm -hmm. that that we're, we're both doctors we can obviously understand how high paced things can get things can get stressful in the office and that can kind of wreak havoc and, and a lot of and there's this term that somebody coined called burnout and so how would you suggest people to prevent or practitioners really but people in general to prevent burnout and right. for practitioners to kind of cultivate compassion for their patients and yeah. and be able to balance that with their private life i mean it's it's delicate but you've you have displayed that to one degree or another in your own life so right well you you bring up a great point it's it, burnout is very high in dentistry um it's not as high as medicine I think uh, medical, the medical world overtook us decades ago. Um, but being a empath or a healthcare provider, I mean, one that cares and <laughs> really puts their heart into it and their mind, um, that can be very draining um, um, and stressful. And it's hard to see people suffer. I, I don't see it anymore, but, but I see it on Instagram and people really are having a tough time and, and uh with oral health and uh and that's that can take you down a little bit um i think it goes back to everything we talked about mindfulness dealing with your own stress uh, but i would recommend so the advantages i mean there are a lot of disadvantages to being a dentist one is burnout um the advantage of dentistry at least for now until you're 
working for someone like a private equity firm or a corporation. But if you're working for yourself, you have some control. So what I did in early in my career is I worked three days a week. Uh, they were 10 hour days though. Uh, so I worked Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 10 hours a day. The average clinician in, in the US does between 28 and 32 hours. They don't do 40 hours, it's too much. Although there are some that do that. And I would not recommend you do that, it's just too much. Um, you know, you're going to be spending some time when you go home working and, you know, uh, working on, you know, issues with the practice, managing the practice or doing research or keeping your license, continuing education that takes time too. But so I worked about 30, 31 hours a week, but that gave me a four day weekend. It gave me time with my kids. You know, if my wife was traveling for business, I was able to pick them up, drop them off. I would go to the, some of their school functions. Uh, I think as long as you can stay connected to a, a, some version of normalcy in terms of whatever that is for you, it may not involve children. It may involve just having a partner or being single and having a life where you would plan a four-day trip. You would, I mean, I have some friends that live alone and, and, you know, between, you know, their work, work hours, they're, they're out trekking and accomplishing something or, or raising money, you know, for someone other than themselves, you know? Uh, so, so if you can stay, keep one foot firmly planted in that. And, and if you realize that work allows you to have that and, and a quality life, and, and then, and then you're not going to separate the two, the two definitely, definitely mix. But what I see is most practitioners go in deep they go in deep with the business, with dentistry, um, and and they literally go overboard, um, and it finally catches up with them, and then their home life is a wreck, so they have nothing to fall back on. So I think it's really where you invest, not necessarily time, but um, effort. And so I think uh, a stay fit, exercise a lot. Uh, I would recommend exercising at least three times a week vigorously, where you're sweating. Uh, and getting out, uh, I'd recommend walking after dinner. I'd recommend working on sleep, uh, set, set an alarm to go to sleep, not to wake up. Uh, that was my big problem. I would stay up late at night cause I could, I'd stay up till one or two. So I'd work till about 10 and then I would listen to music till two and then go to sleep. But then the alarm would go off. My wife's alarm would go off and it was, it was, I was at work. I was in someone's mouth at 7 AM you know, on that three day uh, work schedule, um, you know, later, as I got older, I went to a very unique schedule. It was come in late on Monday, stay till six. So 10 to six on Monday, Tuesday, uh, was early get out at two Wednesday was a full day. And then Thursday, get in early and leave at one. So I still had a three day weekend, three and a half. So take advantage of the fact that you're self-employed Take full control over all your stressors. I mean, you you have to own it. You, you I, I would say to most practitioners, you're the cause of your own stress. Now, in the corporate world, that's a different story, and um, you know that that you can't own. So, I would I would I would say it's it's a great profession because you do have control over that. And if the overhead is too high, then bring in a partner. I mean, there, there's you you have control in in making decisions. And, and so ultimately there should be no burnout. And if you're approaching burnout, you have to make some big changes. Yeah. And I, I've, I've been implementing and that's what we basically do at the office, something very similar to, to what you're describing. And I love that you meant you didn't say the word, but you're basically describing accountability on the yes, practitioner's part. Exactly. You, you have to be accountable for, right. and it, I mean, this isn't just for doctors, this is anybody. I mean, you have to anybody. be accountable for the things going on in your life. Right. right. And 
we and, that, and that's where we learn and grow and then find the lessons, right? Yeah. And I, I love that you, from what I got from from that was that basically you have your practice and your business and and I mean obviously that's a priority, but having something to aspire to or inspire you outside of practice mm-hmm. is right. essential, and and it yeah. it really it really creates a much more fulfilling internal environment. Yep. Yeah. I think you really have to take that role of CEO seriously as a dentist. And a lot of dentists just want to do the dentistry. So they hand that off to maybe a spouse at the front or an office manager or the staff. And, and that's fine. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but, but you, you really have to take on that role as CEO because you are running a business and you are also the workforce. It's a very unusual job. It, it really is. I, I, yeah. I am. I am learning just that. It really. Yeah. It really is because yeah. for right. for years uh, I've been in private practice, going on. Uh, I'm going on 13 years, and Good. for the the first three quarters of that, it was just just getting to focus on dentistry. I did right. a lot of ob- observations about how bus- how the business is run, but I didn't actually have to do anything. So, right. Right. yeah, it's uh, yeah, it, it's a, it's a new it's a new beast, so to speak. Um, and with one thing you started off with, which is kind of leading us into our, our next section here, which is really what you do now and what 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 I do in practice and I guess what you did in practice as well. And right. that's a big part of that is addressing the confusion because there's this dichotomy in, in medicine in general, but especially in dentistry, there's just two seemingly, from an outsider's perspective, it could be like two completely different ways of doing things. Obviously, it's not completely different, but there are some very, very distinct differences. And that's kind of what I want to switch to now. And But before we really get into some of those details, uh, one of the the mottos that I see you say and and have on your websites and things like that is that you can't be healthy without a healthy mouth. Mm -hmm. And you've had your own health journey. And if you could just kind of talk about that a little bit and and what that was like for you. In terms of dental health or... Well, just your your health in general, oh, and, right? Um, yeah. So I, I pretty much, I mean, I I've very blessed with good dental health. I mean, I had anterior crowding. Uh, you know, the width of my maxilla is not ideal. Um, class two, retronathic, small airway, which I found out in in my late forties. Um, um, but thank goodness I'm able to breathe through my nose. I mean, I can mouth tape at night. That's a biggie. Mm-hmm. And you know, half of us uh, maybe more, uh, cannot breathe through our nose, which is uh, something so wonderful is taken away from you when you can't breathe through your nose, uh, on so many levels. Uh, so I'm very thankful for that, but, um, it, it kind of, I mean, in dental school and I'm not sure, I mean, you're more recent graduate than I am, but I don't know. I mean, in my curriculum, and this is late eighties at one of the best dental schools in the world, uh, there was there was very little discussion of the the linking between systemic and and oral health. Uh, you know there was that whole thing about pre-medding for you know uh, uh, bacterial endocarditis. That's yeah. about it. And I'm sure you still got that. Although the prophylactic, the pre-meds uh, uh, regulations, not regulations, but uh, uh, protocols have changed on that. And, and they um, do like every six months. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, you have to kind of stay tuned to the. Uh, American Health, uh, Heart Association. So um, it it took me my journey of being a clinician to figure that out. That okay, so this patient 
always has cavities, but their saliva is very ropey and they complain of dry mouth. Uh, then I realize that they can't breathe through their nose. Uh, maybe they have rheumatoid arthritis, but they also have perio. Um, uh, I even saw some patients, some older patients that weren't great patients. They wouldn't come in often enough. They would only come in for emergency work, but they had perio for 30 years and then they would get Alzheimer's within years of, of retiring at age 65, that kind of thing. I saw it with my mother. Um, so you start making all these connections. I think that is the key to being a good clinician. Yes, you come out of school, you're trained to be a safe clinician, a safe beginner is what they used to call us. They give you the title doctor and you run with it, right? But it really, it to me, it's really what, what you learn and as an observer, and again, that's what Ayurvedic medicine was. That's what all the ancient medicines were. They didn't have studies. They weren't even writing things down. That knowledge was observational, clinical observation. They typically got it right. Uh, their sample size, I don't know what it was, but you know, whatever their practices were, maybe they share information with other clinicians. Um, and then that would get passed on through an apprenticeship to the next generation. And that would that that body of knowledge got built over time and and we still have we, we can still see it because it has been written down now and most of it was correct not all of it but you could argue that they were more correct than we are in western medicine and we have the studies and we've got the microscopes and the scanning electron imagery and and uh dna analysis and all that so so i think i think as a clinician you become, if you're a good learner and you have an open mind and you try and throw a wide net, then you start seeing these connections and then you start looking into the data. And most of us don't have a functional, any functional idea of how dentistry affects breast cancer, for example, or, or why people uh, keep getting canker sores uh, you know, if they're mouth breathing or if their oral microbiome is dysbiotic and those things just, we just don't get that in dental school. So you really have to pick that up in by hanging out with people that are a few years ahead of you by reading the research, uh, um, uh, continue education. There is some, there are some people that are forward thinking, uh, that are kind of beyond the normal curriculum. Um, you know, you know, of many of these organizations, the IAOMT and, and, uh, Forsyth. Uh, I'm working with Forsyth, uh, part of the the Harvard uh, dental arm for research. They've been doing this longer than anyone else has. They since the early 1900s. They've been studying the oral microbiome. They didn't call it that back then, but so there are plenty of. And it's not a dental school. It's not a curriculum. It's a bunch of researchers that have an amazing have access to an amazing amount of information, um, but. How often, how many dentists have heard of the Forsyth Institute? Not many. And so there's this big disconnect. Of course, we're disconnected from physicians and the whole systemic world. You know, we practice in these two parallel universes. There should be a lot of crosstalk there. There isn't. That's changing, thank goodness. So really, if you're a good, I would say the best feature in a clinician, other than clinical skills, is the ability to have an open mind and to be a great observer and to be able to categorize that email, whether it's writing it down or putting it into a spreadsheet or just remembering it and then relating it to future encounters with other patients that have similar uh, cases, uh, that makes you a better practitioner. So that that is the functional way of, of, of practicing. I think that's one aspect of it is being a great observer 
of what you see in front of you. Is is I mean, it's almost like being. I mean, clinicians are clinicians. I think that that's more of a surgical fix the symptom kind of thing. Uh, a, a, a approach that first, but then what do you do from there? I think there then you become kind of a, a an educator and a um, kind of a big thinker in terms of what is the big picture and what can I do? How does that relate to my patient? You know, if they have joint issues and they have perio, let's let's aggressively treat the perio uh, while the physician is trying to treat the rheumatoid arthritis. Maybe we can beat the physician to the punch and and take care of the uh, joint symptoms. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question or not. Well, I mean, in part, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that, um, but what you were just saying is, I completely agree with, I mean, just exempt for an example, documentation is extremely important. So you, mm -hmm. you can just see how somebody is progressing one way or another over time. And right. to, I think I'd say probably more than what, more than half of what I do is education right. and, and it's conversational. So I think that's extremely important. I totally agree with you, but through your observations of your practice, how how did you how did that tie into your own health issues? Because I, to oh, my understanding, right. you had some things with sleep apnea or like right, earlier. Right. No, no. Thanks for uh, bringing that up uh, again. Um, so we're we're all kind of in denial in some parts of our lives, and I was very fit and thin. I had a low BMI. I was literally backcountry skiing and hiking, uh, doing five to six thousand vertical feet a day and then skiing and digging a hole at night, you know, in the snow and camping and doing that for six days. And this is the trans Sierra route and, and then backpacking and I would play soccer and three to five sets of tennis, whatever. And, you know, I was tired, but I didn't know I had sleep apnea, um, until we dropped off our oldest daughter at college. And that was the first time we had all been in the same hotel room for a while and, um, and I mean, I literally woke up true story. Three of my daughters beating me with a pillow going, <laughs> dad, you were so noisy last night. I'm going, wow. Okay. You know, but even then snoring was kind of to me, I mean, and to most of the world and even practitioners was like, okay, when you get old, you snore, but this was in my forties. And it turns out both my wife and I were snoring. Both of us had sleep apnea. And so, uh, I think that really kind of woke that that was a big part of this oral systemic connection. You know, where does that sleep apnea come from? Well, as I told you earlier, I have a small jaw, retronathic, uh, you know, narrow, narrow maxilla, and that leads to a smaller airway. And then as you get older, the airway muscles are tend to relax more and collapse more at night. And so that kind of caught up with me. Well, then if you don't sleep well, then you start getting other comorbidities. Like you start gaining weight. You you can't, you know, your fat metabolism changes and your appetite increases uh, out of proportion to what you're doing in life. And, and, and also you start getting a little edgy and, you know, you start getting a little uh, stressed out when things don't go well. And so you lash out and, and you're just, your composure starts to, to slowly crack. And, and is that aging? No, that was sleep apnea. And so we, both my wife and I, and she's in healthcare as well. We went through the process. We had great healthcare, was near Stanford hospital and connected to that. And, and it was, it was so enlightening in the sense that it was a joke how medicine treated uh, sleep apnea. And, and again, we were able to navigate it finally. And that's why I wrote the book, uh, the eight hour sleep paradox. Um, 
it was so difficult and tortuous and there was so much pushback because you know the insurance companies don't like that PSG the sleep the attended sleep study it's a 3 or 4000 dollar event and and you know we were pretty healthy and thin we didn't have any comorbidities like heart disease or anything like that so th there was a lot of pushback so when we went through that whole process and then later i realized this was a dentally that one of the root causes was facial development lack of breastfeeding um maybe early diet, those kind of things, uh, lack of minerals in, in our, in our diet that, and certainly with my wife as well, that, that this has to come out. I mean, this information again, being observational and, and, and recording all this in your, in your mind, this is information that I had to get out to my patients. And, and there are several other examples, but that was probably my biggest aha moment realizing that I was having a good time doing well, but I was snoring. My airway was suffering. I was not sleeping well. I didn't have an aura ring at the time, but my I had three or four sleep studies, and it was pretty clear that deep sleep uh, and NREM, for that matter, was was too short, and there were too many interruptions that were waking me up. And even having uh, mild sleep apnea, that's 12 interruptions per hour, uh, the physician literally told me that you shouldn't worry. I said, do I need a CPAP? I didn't know much about mandibular advancement devices at the time. He says, now you're fine. Do, I mean, do, do you take naps? I go, yeah, I do take naps. Do you feel okay? I mean, do you ever fall asleep while driving? And I go, no. And then my wife, she had severe sleep apnea. She had 35 interruptions per hour. And of course they did a triple P uh, surgery and then CPAP. CPAP wasn't great. We did an oral appliance for her. But to make a very long story shorter, um, we both dropped our AHIs to zero based on subsequent testing, uh, attended sleep studies. And obviously for my wife, it was night and day in so many regards, but for someone that I really didn't feel like I was tired, it made a huge difference, a massive difference. And it even helped my oral health. Um, I started mouth taping. I got fewer cavities. I wasn't uh, reaching out for the carbs, I uh, started, I became fat adapted. I was able to give up sugar because the cravings weren't there. That whole leptin and ghrelin uh, hormonal uh, kind of axis was was better off. I mean, I, I, I was satiated earlier and I could literally give up sugar. I didn't crave it. In fact, I don't even like the taste of sugar anymore. Um, so, but I would not have been able to do that if I hadn't addressed my sleep and I don't get cavities anymore. Uh, my plaque scores are better, uh, all of that. So, so it's, it took me that, that turning point, that event of discovering how to sleep apnea to really wake up to how this is all connected. And, and from there, I kind of formalized it, wrote a book, started outlining it, outlining it, got online. I wanted to broadcast, I wanted to broadcast this to, to everyone. And, and so that's kind of, that was when I first came online, literally. I mean, yeah. in so many different ways, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for story. sharing that. Um, so so for just a couple, you were describing a facial features and, and what you were describing, I just want to explain to some people, it's basically like a narrowing of the face and mm -hmm. then a, a jaw that's kind of pushed back. So right. that that's exactly. kind of what, what, so people can get a visual of what, what you're talking about. Yeah, and absolutely. In the book, it's funny, you, the, the story, the story that you just expressed with your daughters, and, and I actually had that visual in my head that they're like oh. standing over you, hitting <laughs> you with pillows. And it was just, it was hilarious when I was reading the book. So, so thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of people that can relate to those types of things that had no idea prior to. So 
what is functional or holistic dentistry and what are really the main differences between this and, and the current conventional practice of dentistry? That's a really good question. Uh, difficult for most people, even practitioners, to really define because, I mean, the end result is the same or we we, we think it, it, it should be the same. It isn't the same. The outcomes are better in functional dentistry, but it's like, you know, God damn it. I'm a doctor. I'm going to heal someone. I'm just going to fix the problem and everything's fine. So what's this functional approach uh, all about? Well, it, I'm trying to, I always try and sum it up in one clear way before I start going down rabbit holes. So I would say it allows the practitioner to intervene in prodromal phases of disease. And what that means is that, and we have lots of tools now that allow us to do that. Um, and we have curriculums now that teach us how to be that way. And again, we have to be open-minded, as I said earlier, uh, cast the net wide. So what that means is that instead of, you know, treating gum disease, uh, and it's the same thing in the medical world, there's functional medicine, everything I think about and have, uh, tried to do in functional dentistry is modeled after functional medicine. Why wait till you get high blood pressure? Why not? whether it's through DNA testing or a good medical health exam, family history, combination of both, obviously, diet, counseling, lifestyle counseling, why not never have to deal with that ever in your life by addressing it before it actually happens? Same thing with gum disease. As you know, exactly. gum disease is very difficult. It is, it is our most difficult thing to, to work with in, in patients. And, and most of us deal with it when we start seeing pockets. And when we start seeing bleeding points and and uh, recession and 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 again now with oral microbiome testing, we we know uh, if someone is prone to getting gum disease or cavities, for that example. I'd rather never have to fix a cavity and speak to someone about how to prevent that cavity rather than filling the cavity because there's no going back at that point. And then especially the people that come in every year, every six months, and they always have cavities. And most of us think that's normal. And it is normal in our world because we're eating crap. We're eating, we're literally helping and augmenting the bacteria in our mouth in a distorted dysbiotic uh, way. We're actually promoting decay formation uh, by eating what we eat. So it's a perfect storm. It's the same thing in medicine. And now we have a pill that makes us thin. So, you know, the food company produces all these great tasty foods. Some of them have ingredients in it that make us addicted, that that actually addict us to it, you know, through behavioral response, flavorizers, uh, ingredients that really don't have anything to do with the food. Uh, then we consume it, we seek it out, it replaces other healthy foods because we're eating more of that. It's not just that we eat that, it's that it, re for example, the whole thing with uh, industrial seed oils, that's replacing a lot of good fats that we would have eaten that would have lowered our blood pressure and prevented arteriosclerosis and hardening of the arteries. So, so that's a bad thing. It's, re it's, it's displaced the good stuff. And then all of a sudden we're sick and we have high blood pressure, heart disease. Uh, we've gained weight. So we're more likely to have a smaller airway with adipose, uh, you know, with a, the tongue getting fatter and other parts of the airway. So again, back to, again, I went down that rabbit hole. Uh, it's, it, 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 it's an enlightened practitioner that understands where all this begins. And we use the term in functional dentistry as they do in functional medicine, practicing upstream. So before the patient jumps in, 
into that disease cycle instead of waiting midstream or at the bottom of the stream and just dealing with the symptoms. Dealing with symptoms, we're pretty good at, but it comes with a lot of side effects, side effects of medications, surgeries. Uh, it's just not a great way to age. And the mortality risk is higher and your quality of life certainly is not as good. So it's really about working on disease before it even presents itself. And that may seem like a little bit of a confusing thing for non-practitioners, but there is this prodromal phase of disease where symptoms are not apparent to the patient or even to the practitioner. And if we're waiting for those symptoms, you're doing a great disservice to the patient. Don't wait for them. Make sure you know where your patient's going before those symptoms occur or manifest. For sure. And, and some of those manifestations can be, if you really, if you're looking for them, you might mm -hmm. be able to find them before they're there for the person symptomatic. Uh, I exactly. mean, with oral microbiome testing, I mean, just right. seeing little changes in alveolar bone on x-rays, just look, looking for mild inflammation that that's, that's there when it wasn't there. Just there's these little things that, that you can look for. And right. it's so, so important. And people really appreciate it because and this is the thing that I frequently say is that it it's healthcare versus sick care. Yep. And we, that, that the system that we've kind of found ourselves in overall is a sick care system, unfortunately. Right. And yep. trying, we're trying to pull our, pull ourselves out of that. And at, le at least I try and give people an outlet for yeah. healthcare. Right. I mean, a functional provider would look at their, their new patient. Hopefully they're in by three or four months when they're three or four months old, even earlier. I tell uh, moms to bring in their kids as soon as possible. And if you see that the child has a tongue tie or cannot breathe through their nose, it could be at age one or two, you know where that child's going in terms of dental care, not, not to mention medical uh, uh, systemic health issues, but they're going to get more cavities. Their gums are more likely to be inflamed. Their oral microbiome will literally uh, morph into a dysbiotic state because they're mouth breathing, because the saliva pH is different with low saliva levels. Um, and then of course their face develops differently and that leads to sleep apnea later. So again, if you can recognize those things, and by the way, a dentist can recognize sleep apnea decades before a physician can. I uh, just want to put that out there. We're really good at it. We have the training, they don't. And so they they we need to work together with them. Uh, yeah. But anyway, um, so those are the things that if we catch early, knowing that, those are the downstream ramifications of not catching it or dealing with it then, uh, like you know, expansion of the arch, uh, inter intervening with tonsils, adenoids, uh, the inability to breathe through their nose, all those things. Why wait? Uh, the old the old way was to ah, your kid will walk road. If they don't, we'll deal with it then. Well, by that time, their lower face has developed by age nine. Most of the 80, 90% of development is done. How do you reverse that? We have ways, but it's pretty traumatic and it, it doesn't always work. And, and it, it would be better to intervene earlier and, and not have to do it that way. And then of course we have the orthodontists that come in, they're the big heroes, right? And they straighten the teeth, but they haven't fixed the root cause of anything. That's such a racket. Sorry. No, that, that, conventional that's orthodontics. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I yeah. hear you. And, and yeah. you, you kind of touched on a point that I was going to make is that I see, I'm the only one in the, in the office that, that sees kids. And lucky uh, guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, it's, I don't know, for, I find it fun, but I, I don't want to only see kids, but it, it is fun right. to see kids. But one of the, yeah. and you would know this better than me because I'm um, not a parent just yet, but when the kids are in getting around that like 10 years old ish, maybe even a little bit before that, 
it's hard to break them of habits. Yes. And if they're not breathing through their nose, if they like certain foods, don't like certain foods, if they like to brush their teeth or don't like to brush their teeth, it is really hard yeah. to get kids. And parents are, I mean, it's stressful. So yeah. it, it's hard to help. So I, I find myself trying to support them to to create those kind of changes. But like you said, the earlier you start with these types of things, right. just to get a, a child used to being connected psychologically with their mouth and right. other people, it's yes. really, really beneficial. Right. And starting earlier, for many reasons with kids, they're, they're more amenable to change. When, but if they're a six-year-old and they've got their habits and, you know, it's that that's hard to undo. And you're not going to take goldfish crackers away from them at age six. <laughs> that's that's just like, it's not going to happen, right? Um, I, I, I think, I mean, uh, I was giving you a hard time because kids are hard to work with sometimes, but they're they're lucky to have you because, you know, you, you are thinking functionally and and so you're you're intervening early and that, that not all dentists do that. I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're just filling, they're just filling cavities. And then mom or dad is like uh, another cavity, another 10 cavities in one visit. It's like, what's going on? It's like brushing and floss. You're not brushing and flossing your, your kid's teeth enough. I mean, it's like, no, 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 no. There's so much more to it than that. Yeah. And th that yeah. you literally, that was a perfect segue to, so of course, as dentists, and all dentists that I know anyways are, are recommending brushing and flossing. I mm -hmm. just see this as the tip of the iceberg. Yep. So like the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Right, and right. What, so what are the primary factors people should be aware of and integrate, which is the most important part of it with regard to proper oral health practices? Right. Well, I mean, that analogy is great. Tip of the iceberg. It's, it's not the big iceberg that we see, you know, above water. And again, that's only 10% of the actual iceberg. The rest of it is 90% is below. And we're just talking about the very tip of the iceberg. And when you start thinking that way and start telling patients that that's the root cause of everything, everything goes bad at that point because the symptoms continue and the, the patterns of disease continue and they get worse over time, actually. Um, and, then, and then frustration sets in. And then the behavioral response is, is not so good. They're like, just F this, right? I'm just like, I'm just giving up or, or I'll just pay the dental bill. And, and, and then everyone gets used to it. And they really, most of us, I think still today, think that cavities are a normal thing. It's the number one disease in the world. We take it for granted and it's like, it's normal. It's not normal. It's, it's a recent phenomena and, and patients love to joke about, well, what are you guys complaining about? It's keeping you in business. And I always reply the same way. We got plenty to worry about gum disease. <laughs> it's a, I mean, and, and other things, right. Uh, and, you know, doing 10 fillings on a kid and having to knock them out. That's not fun for us. No, it's we not, don't like doing that. It's and my we least favorite thing. Exactly. So anyway, um, what was the question again? Um, um, really? So the primary factors that people should be aware of and integrate Besides right. the brushing and the flossing. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So I, I'll give you my short version and we'll see if you want to continue from there. But to me, brushing and flossing, which I call biofilm management is number three. Uh, there are four things on this list. Number one is mouth breathing. And that shocks a lot of people. And it's like, well, okay, not most of us don't mouth breathe. So how is that a number one cause? Actually 50, 60% of us mouth breathe and we sleep with our mouth open all night long. And that creates a pH change because there's no saliva. The oral microbiome changes. The bad bugs outnumber the good bugs. That whole 
modulation, the neighbors modulating each other and keeping everything in check and healthy. I mean, the oral microbiome does things. It, it, it's an immune uh, response. It helps remineralize teeth. It's, it's like a system. It's almost like an organ, like a ghost organ that is actually doing stuff in our mouth um, and, and preventing disease from occurring in this very vulnerable part of our body. It's open. I mean, it, it, it has, it can, it, 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 it can experience huge pH changes just by going out and running for an hour and breathing through your mouth that dries out your mouth. The, the biome is impacted by that. Can it recover? Yes. Can it be reset? Yes. Can it get very, very sick and need to be reset aggressively with strong disinfectants? Yes. In some cases. So, so there are some people, so for people that mouth breathe, which is the majority of us, that's the number one cause address that. If you can't mouth tape, you can't breathe through your nose, then obviously you have to fix that because you are going to have, you're going to have dental anxiety beyond just having cavities and a lot of crowns and root canals and then missing teeth because they crack. You, you could be grinding more even because of that. Uh, your dental bills are going to be high, but you're also going to be very phobic because when the dentist works on you, they're working on your primary airway. In other words, that's where you're getting your air. So they put a rubber dam on, there's water or saliva building up in the back of your throat. That's essentially waterboarding in a way. I mean, and you can't breathe through your nose and you're tilted backwards. So all of my phobic patients, 99% of them, there are other reasons you could have bad experiences early on in your dental career. Uh, they had issues. I mean, that was easy for us. Once we identify that, I would come out and say, listen, you're going to be very nervous seeing me if they haven't already expressed that. And they're like, yeah, you're right. I'm sweating it out right now. And it's like, well, this is why. And that was very helpful to them. Don't put those patients down. I would do stand-up dentistry on them. That was hard on me, but you know, it didn't happen too often. Uh, give them a lot of rest. I would recommend that all dentists have cuspidors. Uh, I think a dental chair without a cuspidor is 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 tough on patients. Uh, and then rubber dams are difficult. But then you have all these great. We have all these new methods of suction and the little barriers and and all of that works very well. So you got to keep that airway open, but you also can't block it. Visually, that's enough to set them off. Mm -hmm. um, so, but if you're not a nose, if you're able to nasal breathe, then the number one cause is probably diet. So diet and mouth breathing are kind of toggling back and forth, but mouth breathing close second would be diet. Diet is, our diet today is horrendous. As we spoke earlier in this uh, episode, um, we talked about how it's actually accelerating and, uh, increasing the potential for decay. We're actually making it optimal for decay, for inflammation in the mouth, uh, necrosis of gum tissue, uh, sensitive teeth, bad, bad breath, certainly um, a halitosis and even canker sores. We're, we're accelerating that process by the foods that we eat. And then number three is brushing and flossing. Now we've been talking about this for what, 10, 15 minutes. What dentist has time to talk about this? The hygienists have time. Yeah. They have and they have a person sitting there for an hour. This is what should be mentioned. And then the fourth reason would be genetics. Yes, some teeth are more, you know, as the the developmental groove is invaginated. There's, you, you know, there are genetic reasons for some people getting more prone to getting cavities than others. And then there's some epigenetic factors as well, which points back to mouth breathing, the environment, air pollution, allergies, and all that. So, so it's a very complicated thing, right? I mean, it's not. It's multifactorial. Everything in the body, whether it's good or bad, is typically multifactorial. There isn't one reason. 
So I think as a profession, we have to stop leaning on this brushing and flossing and come see us twice a year. Yeah. That's not that's not enough information for our patients. For sure. We're doing them a disservice. Definitely. And that, that's the term I use is uh, it's all multifactorial. And that's that's really why I like the term holistic, because it's the right. whole system and right. it, everything's playing off of one another. And just because you're in one state today doesn't mean that's how you're going to be tomorrow. Right. Right. And just getting like blood work, it, it's it, it's tricky because you're just getting a snapshot in time. Right. Um, but that, that's why doing these things at, at regular intervals and, and seeing fluctuations and changes and obviously how you feel makes a big difference. Yeah. And and we've normalized, like you're saying, these certain kinds of conditions, whether it's sleep apnea and snoring or or and cavities. I mean, th- these right. things just aren't normal. Yeah. And and we start believing the message that we're giving our patients. So if we keep saying that over and over, it's yeah. not brushing and flossing well enough, then we become part of that cycle and we believe it to be the only factor. And that is extremely dangerous because in our treatment modalities and our measure of success and our ability to really explain to work pro in the prodromal phase, you know, if we always fall back on the fact that it's, well, you just didn't do a good job. That's so bad on so many different levels. And that's traumatic for people too. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, most, I would say at least half of people have some sort of dental phobia. And now yes. if you're criticizing totally. them, and then putting them down, essentially telling them that they're not doing a good job. Oh, makes that it worse. Wait, you? I mean, you'll be you're lucky if that person comes back in for the next cleaning. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and only fifty percent of of patients in the U.S. see us on a regular basis. Um, they'll come in if they're in a lot of pain. But isn't it interesting that it's about fifty percent in terms of phobia? It's about fifty percent in terms of mouth breathing, uh, and it's about fifty percent that don't come and see us on a regular basis. I mean, those mm-hmm. numbers align in a way. And the shaming has got to stop. I mean, that's something we talk a lot about at Ask the Dentist and, and it's, it makes things worse. And, and, and it's not, it's again, believing our own message. We have fallen for fallen back on our own message. And so we actually believe that it's the patient's fault. It's really not the patient's fault. Um, It's multifactorial. There are a lot of things going on. And if we can just point those things out, uh, you know, they may not always like the message, uh, you know, uh, stop eating this food. Uh, can, is, I'll just brush and floss more. Well, that won't work. I mean, it may mitigate it a little bit, but you're still going to get cavities. You're still going to alter the oral microbiome and you're going to elevate s bug levels and, and uh, P. gingivalis bug levels. You, you are altering this incredible ecosystem that is part of our existence and part of our body. Yeah, we're, we're not just humans. We're, we're a super organism. Yeah. Very complex superorganism. And we're not taking care of that part of us, that foreign DNA, actually it's alien DNA um, to us. Uh, we're not taking care of it. And if we don't take care of them, they can't take care of us. And then the relationship breaks down and we start getting really sick. Yeah. And that's the gut microbiome. It's all the biomes. Yep. And it's really about being having a partnership, being being yep. uh, creating a healthcare partnership. And, right. and that's what it, in my view, should be between practitioner and patients. Yep. 